This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Danny M. Lavery, and with me in the studio is Janae Desmond-Harris, Slate's Dear Prudence. She was previously a senior staff editor at the New York Times, where she is now a contributing opinion writer. Janae, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to have you here. Um, I have been so excited to uh, regain the joy of reading Dear Prudence now that I no longer write Dear Prudence. And I have been enjoying uh, your turn at the helm immensely. Although I will say I finally hit the point of um, like whether it's ADHD or pandemic inflected forgetfulness, I can't quite be sure. But occasionally there will now pop up like read a classic Dear Prudence and it will be from my tenure. And I will think, right. wow, I've never seen this letter in my life. I have, this is brand new to me. Like I read it with fresh eyes and I'm, I have no memory of either reading or answering it. I can totally imagine that just because there are so many letters and so many crazy situations and a lot of them kind of just end up bleeding into each other and like feeling familiar. It's a delight. Like I, I genuinely, as as you know, as a fellow, you know, advice column enthusiast, I read just about every Dear Prudence session that was available, like through the archives, uh, you know, years ago when I was working a, a different day job. And so I loved it immensely and I missed it. And I'm really glad that now, apparently, my mind is letting me forget all of my own answers so I can read them as if for the first time. Well, yeah, like I told you, I think I, as soon as I got the job, I stopped reading your columns and I wouldn't listen to your podcast just because I was a big fan of yours and I was afraid that I would unintentionally just try to imitate you and be you. And now that I've been going for a couple of months, I felt safe. So I went and like listened to all the archives. So I'm good now. I, I think I shared that fear as well. Like I was really afraid of doing that. And I wonder now looking back, I'm like, I think I know how to stay myself. Like as you said that, yeah. I felt like I bet you can remember you're you and I'm me. Yeah. Has it been roughly what you kind of anticipated? Have there been sort of new joys of writing the column that you didn't get from reading the column? So I don't know if it's the honeymoon phase, but it has been more fun than I thought it would be. I'm just really, really enjoying it. I feel like, I mean, it's work, but when I'm doing it, I'm in the mindset of like texting my friends. Mm -hmm. Like that's just how natural it feels because I'm just a person with a lot of opinions who honestly is pretty judgmental. But, you know, I'm not, I know how to behave in the world. So I don't go around giving my opinions if I'm not asked. And now I've been asked and it just feels great. I, I was just thinking that. I was like, you also know how to behave. You never offer unsolicited advice. And what's delightful is it's like, oh, I've been asked to to put my oar in. Thank you, I will. Totally. So yeah, I've been really, really enjoying it. And I think one unexpected thing is that the questions are really good. Um, I thought when I got access to the inbox, it would just be full of like, this is more of a comment than a question and <laughs> rants and hate mail and just kind of incoherent descriptions of situations that didn't make sense. But it's like 80% like well-written, clear descriptions of people's dilemmas that are appropriate for an advice column. So that's been pleasant. And kind of remarkable because, you know, as, as you as you kind of acknowledged at the beginning, like anyone can write an email to that account. Like there's there's no filter. There's no like, you don't have to pass a certification like test to make sure that you're nice and thoughtful. 
Um, so right. The fact that many, many people, like the majority are coming to you with like, I've thought a lot really carefully about my life and my problems and I would like your advice is kind of lovely. Yeah. And people really seem to sincerely want to do the right thing. Um, there is one person who every week fills in every field of the forum, like question, tagline, email address with make your answers shorter. They're long and boring. So like I'll be reading all these sincere questions and then see that like every, <laughs> you know, 80 questions. It's fine. Which, but uh, yeah, that's the kind of thing that's sort of like it's it's low level enough trolling that it doesn't necessarily like wound you or stick with you in the same way other things might. But there's also this sort of like, did you do you automate that? Do you have a little calendar reminder every week to right. say that? Like, surely that takes up a lot of your time. Right. And also some of the answers are like one sentence. I'm like, give me some credit. They're not all long and boring. Well, today at least, uh, I hope that we are able to occasionally go long. That's been one of the joys for me about switching to a format that's only part advice uh, once a week, which is to say I can really spread around and make like snow angels in my answers. I'll go ahead and read our first letter so that you can read the second one because that's just how I want it. <laughs> the subject of the first one is shut out of friendship. My partner and I have a mutual friend who's closer with my partner than to me. She's friendly with me most of the time, but often says things that seem to indicate she doesn't like me. I'm introverted and socially anxious, and she often complains generally about people who don't keep up in a conversation. She accuses me of being, quote, so upset when I'm just being quiet. When we were in grad school together five years ago, I confided in her that I had just come out, but she excluded me from hangouts with her other new queer friends at our school. It sucked, but I understood I couldn't force someone to befriend me just because I wanted more queer friends. We're still very much in each other's lives. Weeks ago, she asked my partner if she could hug them, and they said yes. It was an exciting post-vaccination embrace. Then she said she wouldn't hug me. I know this is a small thing and that my shyness is often interpreted as leave me alone, but I felt shut out again. It's making things worse because I get even more awkward and self-conscious around her. We see her all the time. We're in multiple group chats together. Do I talk to her about the small and I think unintentional ways that she hurts my feelings every time I see her? Just let it go? Am I being too hard on her? So I thought this was actually pretty hard. I thought all the questions you picked today were really hard. Um, mm -hmm. I might have actually skipped them because my responses are kind of like, I don't know. There are a few things you can try. <laughs> um, so when I first read this, I I got the vibe that maybe this person was extraordinarily sensitive mm -hmm. and maybe like reading a little bit too much into their partner's friend's behavior especially when I heard the word excluding, right. which I don't think is something I've heard since like elementary school. Like excluding isn't really a thing when you're an adult. You just hang out with you hang out with who you hang out with. You're not excluding the other people. But I read it again and what jumped out to me was the refusal to hug. That's an attack. That's a declaration of war. That's really rude and really mean. <laughs> That's so funny because I, I also felt, you know, ambiguous about this one, but I actually interpreted that moment differently. I was wondering if it was possible that that friend thinks of the letter writer as like my part, my friend's partner who really doesn't like me and is quiet and doesn't really engage with me. So I'm like reassuring them that like, don't worry, I'm not going to try to hug you because you seem to radiate. Oh. Don't hug me. Oh, I did not think of that. Um, 
if that's the case, then this situation is a lot less dramatic. Everything I had to say basically revolved around this person being like, I'm going to give this exciting post-vaccination hug. I'm not hugging you, Um, which is just really mean. I mean, I definitely also do think that that's a possible reading. Like, I think there are some things that the letter writer has been taking too personally, but that doesn't mean that they're always off base here. And so I certainly think that's a possibility. And let's let's maybe start with an answer, assuming that that was the case, that it was like, I'm not going to hug you. I want you to sort of feel shitty. I think you're useless and I want you to feel bad about yourself. Okay, so in that case, I would encourage the letter writer to um, to remember that not everyone will like you and that's okay. And you don't have to like everyone and it's not personal, but it's not really okay for people to like be rude to you and mistreat you when you're in the same social circle. So I would encourage them to kind of like disentangle evidence that they're not this person's favorite with times this person is like actually rude and unkind to them. And the hug to me was the actually rude and unkind moment. And I think it's the kind of thing that calls for a what's going on? Do you have a problem with me conversation? Mm-hmm. Have I done something to offend you? I've noticed like the following behaviors. I'm sure there might be other examples. And, you know, I want to take the opportunity to apologize if there's something to apologize for or to clear the air because we spent a lot of time together. And I just want to make sure that um, there's not a problem between us. Yeah. And that might feel daunting to somebody who kind of describes himself already as socially anxious. But I think that that's a really useful sort of script, which is just you don't have to list every time you think that the two of you have crossed wires or demand an explanation for all of them. This is just a check in to say, it seems like I might have been irritating you lately. It seemed to me when you said you didn't want to hug me that you were cross with me or upset. Are we, you know, what's going on? Do you need something from me? That's pretty brief and doesn't necessarily require like a big heart to heart or saying like, I want us to be incredibly close. Because I I think it's clear here, the goal is definitely not get closer to this person. It's Mm -hmm. just find a way to be slightly more peaceful and neutral when we bump into each other. And then I think for the letter writer, again, whether some of these moments are intentional or not, to think of this person as just like, I don't really like her. You know, maybe I don't want to be in a lot of group chats with her. For example, I think sometimes people when they get put in a group chat, they think like, I have been selected to join the A-team and I'm not allowed to resign. Like, I have to die on the job. And I get that it's weird etiquette because like, if you just leave one without announcing anything, it might feel odd. But again, this is just someone, I don't want to use language of force exactly, but like someone just randomly chose you to be in a group chat at some point. And that that does not, that's not a lifelong commitment. You can absolutely say like, hey guys, it's easier to like text me individually. I'm signing off. Totally. I also think it'll be good to have the conversation with like a, is it possible there was a misunderstanding spin to it? Even though you you kind of know this person's being a jerk. I think opening up that way will sort of disarm them um, mm-hmm. and might and might make her say, you know, no, 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 there's not a problem. Um, you know, you must be imagining things and then change behavior so that that can be true and just be overall more pleasant. Yeah. And then I think really the conversation to have is with your partner. Yes. um, Which is not like you should stop being friends with her because she and I don't get along so much as just we have this mutual friend. I felt sort of obligated to be really close with her since we've known her for so long. But I think we kind of just don't vibe. And like my goal is to be a little bit more relaxed around her, but otherwise scale back. So none of this is to say that you should stop being friends with her or that I want you to act as a go-between, but I just want to let you know, you know, 
she and I are not best friends. We're not going to become best friends. I think that's that's fair and that's probably the right answer. But the answer that I feel in my heart is if someone's being unkind to me and making digs at me and refusing to hug me, my partner should not want to be friends with them anymore. I, I definitely want to also leave that one open. Again, like if it is the case that that was absolutely a dig and if you, you know, maybe you can even ask your partner, like I experienced that moment as a dig. How did it read to you? And if your partner says, you know, now that you mention it, yeah, it actually did seem pretty rude. And you can say like, I think sometimes she is rude to me. I, I don't want to make a lot of assumptions, but like, do you get that impression? In which case you might absolutely want to say like, I want you to be a little bit more defensive of me, not act defensively all the time, but you know, if you notice her kind of trying to ice me out of something in the conversation or saying something kind of snide, um, I'd appreciate, not that you have to say like, fuck off, we're going home, but maybe like squeeze my hand, change the conversation, ask me how I'm doing. You know, yeah, your partner should absolutely not just be like, yeah, you're fucking imagining things and you're bad at talking to people and I like my friend better than I like. If that's the response you're getting, that's probably an indicator that you don't have a great partner. And I think you make a good point that the partner can kind of weigh in on this situation because it sounds like the partner has been here for most of it. Maybe not the grad school part, um, but just as someone who seems to probably be like less shy and less anxious, um, I would be interested in getting the partner's take on how these interactions look to you. You know me well. Am I overreacting or is there something going on here? Like you're on the group chat. Like, let's go over the text. Like, what do you think about the way she talked to me here? You know? Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And to present it as like, I'm asking for your feedback, I think will go a long way towards making your partner feel uh, non-defensive, which is definitely good. This this is the kind of thing, I, I, I'm glad that you're here for this because I think often I hear from people who will sort of preface their problem with, I'm really anxious and afraid of confrontation. Mm-hmm. So please don't advise me to do anything that would involve like naming reality or like raising the possibility that someone doesn't like me. And I think sometimes people can get so scared of that, especially with someone they consider a friend. They'll just think like, obviously, whatever happens, I could never say to someone, seems like I'm upsetting you. Is everything okay? Like they just would right. wither and die. And it's really, I think in some ways I used to feel that way. And it actually is not fatal. And in in a lot of ways, it's really bracing. Does that make sense? Totally. I mean, it's, it's just, it is hard to have hard conversations. Um This is a very, very minor example, but actually like a funny memory that I have with you where I felt like you used a pretty script was, I don't know if you remember, we went to brunch with some people in San Francisco and went like shopping around the mission later. We were in this store with like, I don't know if it was like vintage stuff or like international odds and ends. And you wanted to buy this like big furry coat and you had been waiting to check out for a while. Mm -hmm. And the store owner was... um, deep in conversation with me about like my hair, which she was touching and her world travels. And I was just kind of going to be like, she was the white lady moving to Bali. Oh, of course she was going to also be a hair toucher. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Right. So we just, I was just kind of going to be like this letter writer. Like this is awkward, but I don't want to say something hard. And I know that Danny needs to check out, but God forbid I announced that. And you just said like in the voice of Prudy, excuse me, I know that you're enjoying that conversation, but we would really like to check out now if you could come help us. And I was like, that was great. It was a tiny smidge, tiny bit uncomfortable, but it was like so effective. And a lot of people just don't even like to speak up in a situation um, as innocuous as that. It's one of those things where once you start doing it and you realize 
there's no like witch's curse that descends on you and people don't like flee from you in horror. It's actually kind of fine. Yeah, totally. I, I don't know. I was just rewatching that episode of 30 Rock last night where uh, Tracy tells Liz, uh, you know, is it because you're secretly terrified of her? Like all women are, like all white women are of their best friends. Um, and she's <laughs> just like, yes. <laughs> and I think about that one a lot. Yeah. And you don't, you don't really want to be too terrified of your best friends or your partner's friends um, for too long. Yeah. Or like somebody who you see a lot but don't like. And of course, I don't want to advise anyone to start taking up like a really antagonistic relationship with a, a forced mutual. But certainly, if you have been spending five years thinking that they're being rude to you, don't suffer another five years in silence. Yeah. The last thing that I think about this one is just, as you said, I would really encourage the letter writer to let go of this language of I was excluded. You know, mm-hmm. I came out to someone and then she didn't invite me to a party. Those two <laughs> things uh, are not, one doesn't follow the other. You know, you offered someone an emotional disclosure. It sounds like she was generally affirming. It doesn't sound like she was like, that's terrible or I, I, I hate you. Um, and that's kind of all you can ask for. And if someone doesn't then also say, and now I want to be closer friends and like, join my circle of friends, that doesn't mean they had a bad response to your coming out. It just means that you two had different goals when it comes to friendship. And that can be sad, but it doesn't mean that someone's hurting you or doing the wrong thing. It just means there's a little mismatch. Right. There's a big difference between having a party and inviting 20 people and not the rest of the people in the class and having a party where you invite everyone and put a sign on the door that says, like, this person can't come in. I think the letter writer feels like the latter situation happened was actually the former. Yep. And sometimes I think if somebody thinks of themselves as really introverted or withdrawn, there's sometimes a corresponding desire to have someone else draw them out. And if that happens, that's wonderful. But if that's an expectation that you have of other gregarious people, and then they don't meet that expectation, they're not actually doing anything wrong. Such a good point. And again, that's not to say you have to go read like Dale Carnegie and become like a glad hander and start inviting people over to parties every day, but find other ways to make friendships at a pace that feels good to you rather than, you know, have these kind of secret expectations that if you say to someone, you know, I'm gay and lonely, um, that they'll say, you know, come to a party tomorrow. Like it's great if they do, but if they don't, they're not harming you. Right. And my final thought on this is, I would encourage the letter writer to just, I know it's so hard to just like change the way you think, but explore the mindset of not liking people who don't like you or not caring about people who don't like you. I just (laughs) think that life is a lot easier, whether it's like romantic relationships or friendships, when you're not chasing people down to try to get them to like you when they don't for reasons that are fair or unfair. I think you don't seem to like me. Okay, well, screw you is a pretty healthy attitude. I think so too. I mean, obviously it it hurts if someone treats you rudely, but Mm -hmm. distinct from that is sometimes I think there can be that sense of, but you must like me. Everyone has to like me. Um, And that will, you know, cause you a lot of unnecessary hurt if you carry that around in life, I think. Right. Um, And sometimes it's just fine to say like, I don't even want this person to like me outside of the little engine at the back of my mind that says everyone has to like me or I'll die. Right. And I also think the letter writer is like filtering all of this through what feels like a lot of shame around being quiet and anxious and introverted. 
like all of those are okay ways to be. Um, if you want to get help to like try to be less of those things, that's okay. But there's nothing wrong with you for being shy, awkward, quiet, or whatever else you are. You don't have to change. Yeah. Hopefully, maybe if you, you know, step back from some of these group chats and some of these like big hangout sessions with everyone from grad school, you'll have more time to pursue other one-on-one friendships with people that you would like to get to know a little bit better who maybe seem like they have some quiet, peaceful vibes. And that might be lovely. Our second letter, I just want to flag, uh, you know, the letter writer is talking about trying to figure their relationship out to like shame, desire, and sexuality. So they're using some loaded language, but it's, I think, fairly tongue-in-cheek or like self-deprecating. So I just wanted to mention that uh, it can sound a little bit harsh, that first sentence, without this preface. And I just want to let it be known. I don't think the letter writer is is trying to say like, these are firm categories of people. <laughs> Should I go ahead and read it? Yeah, you have to read it. Okay. Subject, trapped. I'm a cis woman in her mid-30s, a former slut, and now I don't know, a dead inside, questioning asexual. I really just don't want to be touched, and I'm not sure if it's trauma or just simply that I hate my body so much that the idea of someone seeing me naked or touching my body makes my stomach hurt. My aforementioned sluttiness, am I allowed to use this term, was connected with a 10-year stretch of binge drinking. Now, I've been sober for five years. And ever since I stopped partying, I can't get myself to be intimate with anyone. I can barely look in the mirror. I'm quote unquote thin, but my body is confusing and I don't know how to live with it. I feel this sense of dread when I think about a future and having this body with me the whole time. Do you have advice on how to live with a body that feels like an enemy? Thank you. I feel so much affection for this letter writer. Like I know that they're just she's just going through the mill, but I just... I found this kind of charming. Like there was real levity as well as seriousness and a sense of, I I like the sound of the person writing this letter and I feel a a strong desire to just like radiate warmth towards them wherever they are. Yeah, a lot of vulnerability and a great sense of perspective as well. Um, And yes, I think you're allowed to say the word slutty cheekily, especially if you're talking about yourself. Um, I can't promise you that everyone in the world will enjoy hearing that word, but uh, I don't think it rises to the level of um, something that you must assume should never be spoken aloud in in company. Yeah. Like, read the room, certainly. Don't use it in a job interview. (laughs) Right, right. But it's okay to use it in this letter. So I would say that the thing that I wanted to start with, the, the letter writer uses dead inside in quotes at the beginning. And so it does seem to me like there's some sort of question of, I don't know whether to consider my repulsion or fear at the prospect of sex or physical intimacy as something that I would want to understand as being part of like a possible asexual identity or understanding of myself as an asexual person. I think more I'm associating it with a problem that I have and that I would like help with. So my my sense was the question that the letter writer is kind of confused around is like, do I want to think of myself as asexual? And I also sometimes experience my fear of sex as something that I would like to quiet. Or do I not think of myself as asexual? And I think of this, like, these suite of experiences as um, merely the result, not merely, but solely the result of, like, trauma or something else that I want to work through. So, you know, uh, I don't have, like, concrete thoughts there other than just, you know, 
I'm glad that you seem to be paying attention to that sense of deadliness, terror, instability, and need to protect yourself. As, as deeply unpleasant as a lot of it sounds, I am glad that you are prioritizing that need. And it sounds like not trying to have sex right now. I'm glad you can give yourself space from it. Um, yeah, that, that's a really unorganized collection of thoughts. I guess I just wanted to say any possible outcome the goal should be to understand yourself better and to have a more concrete sense of what you want and what you need in order to get there. So if that means employing the word asexual, do that. If it means not doing that, you know, don't do it. Um, it is okay to say, I feel traumatized about sex and I would like to get back to having a higher sex drive or a higher desire to have sex. That is a good thing. So you are entitled to any and all of those things. Yeah, when it came to the... um like fear or disgust over the idea of intimacy and being touched. I wrote down, this is totally normal um, for someone who's recently become sober. And then I realized that my idea that it was normal came from one episode of Couples Therapy on HBO where there was a guy who was an alcoholic and then like didn't want to have sex. So I was like, oh, I've heard this before. This happens <laughs> to everyone. Um, <laughs> so, but I do like feel that it's probably normal. Um, the person who's been sober for five years so it has been a while and I hate to just default to the response of like, this is really hard, like definitely get therapy. But that was sort of what kept coming up for me. Like this is also legitimate. It's also hard and you deserve help figuring it out. Yeah. I think especially because, you know, the letter writer says, it's not just that I can't conceive of being intimate with somebody. It's also, I can't really picture a future living with my body as it presently is. So right. it's it's moving into almost every area of, of life. And that, to me, rises to the level of like, I want to talk to somebody on a pretty regular basis about this. Right. I mean, I didn't want to overreact, but when I read Sense of Dread about the future and not being able to live with this body, you know, for much longer, I got a little bit of like a red flag went up to me about like possible suicidal thoughts or at least mm -hmm. the kind of deep hopelessness and inability to see a future that could be connected to suicidal thoughts. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, I think the letter writer's relationship with her own body and like her struggle to survive in her own body and not wanting to move forward in it is much more urgent and serious than like the intimacy issues. Yeah. And so letter writer, you know, I, I, just want to flag that as information for you, not to say like you need to freak out or you have to do the following X things as a result of feeling this way. But yeah, there is definitely some, I think I would maybe call it passive suicidal ideation in this letter, which is to say, I can't really picture a future. The idea of doing this for a long time feels pretty insurmountable. And I don't necessarily have like a concrete plan to hurt myself in the near future, but uh, things are not just like a little tricky. And maybe if something just happened that sort of cut my life short, that would be okay. And that sort of thinking, yeah, I, th I think is sometimes useful to call passive suicidal ideation. If, letter writer, you are worried about disclosing that to a potential therapist because you're concerned about possibly getting treatment forced on you, um, I think that that would make sense. You could really clarify, uh, you know, sometimes when I have shared passive uh, suicidality in certain contexts, I have stressed first, I have no plans to harm myself. I want help with these feelings, you know, to kind of let whatever mental health provider I was talking to, like where I was at and, and to sort of make it clear that this was not like a 
immediate crisis, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly one thought that comes to mind, letter writer, when I see somebody talking about being confused by their body, not being able to envision a future in it, is transition. That is not the only thing that is connected to thoughts like that, but it's certainly one that came up for me as I was reading this. So that might be something you also want to consider, um, whether or not part of the fear of the future is the idea of like continued reinforcement of like sexual dimensions in your life that have to do with like your assigned sex at birth. Um, that might be food for thought. Yeah. She said, my body is confusing. My body is confusing. It's kind of an interesting thought. Um, I know a lot of people hate their bodies, especially women. Like in our society, it's you're like taught to hate your body as a woman, but confusing is no word that I hear a lot. So um, if we had the letter writer here, I'd want to hear a lot more about that. And like, what about it? What about it is confusing? Mm -hmm. And absolutely, I don't want to suggest that like everybody's route to transition comes through like a really like acute sense of dysphoria or self-loathing. Um, but I will say for me, when I first started thinking about the possibility of transitioning, I would try to logic myself out of it by being like, no, no, no. Everyone knows women feel bad about their bodies. Mm. If I feel bad about my body, that is further evidence of my womanhood and makes me feel worse, which makes me more of a woman. And now I have to lie down on the floor and think about Brendan Fraser from 1998 <laughs> and cry. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that, that again, that, that if any of that rings an alarm bell within you, letter writer, or feels either like, oh man, that feels kind of close to something, or wow, I hate that idea. Fuck you for saying it. That might be worth thinking about. Um, gosh, I, there's so much here. I guess what I would really just want to focus on is, letter writer, what you're describing is really serious and really painful and pretty chronic. I don't think it's just like a customary outcome of stopping drinking, especially five years later. So in terms of like, does this, like, is this a high enough level of seriousness that I kind of deserve help and support for it? I think the answer is yes, absolutely. Um, but it's also not like completely unheard of or throws you outside of the realm of like legible human experience. I think that there are definitely ways that you can receive help for this. That's not to say that I can promise you that you're going to want to have lots of sex again or that you're going to want to like experience sluttiness again in an affirming way. Um, I don't know what the best possible outcome would look like for you. It might simply be in the near term, like I'm not always alone with my thoughts of self-loathing and confusion. Mm -hmm. There's there's somebody else. Yeah, I think the first order of business, like the two most important things are make sure that you don't start drinking again because this is the kind of pain that I could see contributing to that and that you don't hurt yourself. And that probably happens like through some help and some therapy. And then after those things feel a little more stable or maybe they feel stable now, um, then move on to like, do I want to have relationships? Do I want to like what I see in the mirror? And then I get almost like the lighter and more fun question is like, should I call myself asexual? Like you can deal with that when you just feel better. Yeah. Yeah. And there's not an obligation, you know, I think sometimes people worry like, will I then have an obligation to feel like a good asexual person? Like, am I allowed to consider myself asexual if I feel a lot of despair? And, you know, you as a human being get to be a human being. You don't have to be like a good representative of a community. So for whatever that's worth. I think my last thought letter writer, and again, I really do encourage you to, to see a, a therapist, particularly a trauma-informed therapist, because you know you do mention various trauma. 
that you think might be a part of this. And that's not to say that like, if you can like identify and locate the trauma, you can solve it and then your problems will all go away. But that it is an important part of how you're reacting to all of this. My last thought is just like on a daily practical basis and you're looking for ways to live peacefully with a body that feels like your enemy, you know, I think whenever possible, you know, because it can be so hard to go from that to like, no, your job is to love yourself because that can mm-hmm. actually feel horrifying. That can feel like, hey, your job is to love something that you want to fight with all your might and all of your strength. And it's like, no, you're telling me to transform my values. Like that feels very threatening. And so I think, Whenever you have an opportunity to treat your body like a neutral, I, I don't know if this like mental image will be helpful, but like imagine that like it's like the olden days and like someone has like come up from the one road and is like, please, I need shelter and alms for the night. Like think of your body as a traveler that is down on its luck and has stopped at your inn. And you don't have to like that body. You don't have to be friendly with it, but to just think like here is a human being who is coming off the road and needs a steaming bowl of soup and a warm bed for the night. Um, And so on those days when kindness is just a bridge too far, aim for neutrality. Sometimes it can help to think of your body as like maybe an old friend who you care about a lot and who, if they were there in that kind of pain, you would want to look after them and be very easy on them and not require that they push themselves too hard. And so If that's useful in those moments, think of your body as like a beloved childhood friend Um, and just think about if my friend showed up and they were, you know, weeping or really flat affect and just said, I hate myself. Would I offer them a cup of tea? Would I encourage Mm -hmm. them to take a nap? Would I, you know, get them something comfortable to wear rather than like say, look in the mirror, start loving yourself, make eye contact, like get comfortable with nudity. Like that would be, I think, really harsh. Um, and yet sometimes we can think like that's the route to self-love. Totally. I love the idea of body neutrality as a goal rather than love. And you don't have to look in the mirror at all if you don't want to. Um, yeah. I think when I first read it, I kind of had the same feeling of like care for your body, do nice things. And I was thinking about things like sugar scrubs and yoga and walks. I just it sounded a little too trite for the situation. But whatever it means to you to like be nice to your body, I think might help a little bit. Yeah. And it's not that those things are trite so much as they're really like context dependent. I think like if you're feeling really run down, but you enjoy sugar scrubs and you have some on hand, it's great. And if you're in that state where you're like having to touch my body or be aware of my nakedness, sounds like a nightmare. Sometimes the solution there is just like go to the pharmacy, get the cheapest kind of baby wipes that you can and you know, scrub yourself down while remaining clothed and then you change into clean clothes because then that way you got at least somewhat cleaner. But if you're just like genuinely like, if I get in the shower, I will lose it. You know, that is like, I want to say like harm reduction because I think that's like better applied to like actual drug policies. Mm -hmm. But, you know, looking for that crossroads between what is something that would be good for me right now and what is something that I'm capable of doing right now. And when you're at the stage of, thinking about my body makes my stomach hurt. I can't imagine a future, you know, the idea of sugar scrub and a nice long bath, which might be great for somebody else in a really different context who's like also struggling might feel for you like self-harm. And so it's, it's not that sugar scrubs are like bad or thoughtless. It's just that it's very, very context dependent. And they require a lot of like looking at your body. Um, So yeah, Treat yourself the way you would treat a good friend. Treat your body the way you would treat a good friend if you can. And have someone 
help you get there if you can. Yeah. And just remember the goals right now are not getting naked in front of somebody or having sex or having a big smile when you look in the mirror. Um, and because if those goals feel terrifying or alienating, that's just going to make you want to withdraw further. Your goals are let somebody else know about the pain I'm in. Try to see what kinds of help are available to me. Maybe that's going to involve some depression medication for a while. Maybe that's going to involve trying to carefully envision futures that do seem possible. You know, again, not to bring it back too much to my own life, but I certainly remember, especially during that year when I was kind of both wanting and not wanting transition and sort of hoping that, again, Brendan Fraser from 1998 would swing into my living room and be like, I've made the decision for you. Inject me with Mm -hmm. testosterone and then like swing Mm -hmm. back out. Um, Was like, I would sometimes just like have a vision of like myself making tea or like boiling eggs, but like as a man. Mm. Of course, it was also like with like, you know, the the jawline of a cartoon pilot because like, why not? (laughs) But like that would feel like both this incredibly wonderful and this incredibly hopeless thing. And it would just feel like I I can't believe that that's not just going to happen to me. Mm. Um, and so there's obviously lots of other ways people can feel bad or confused about their future or their bodies. But if suddenly the idea of that feels like, oh, that would be great, you know. Think about make it. Make something for that. Yeah. yeah. Give it a thought. Give it a thought. You never <laughs> have to transition, but it's always an option. Uh, okay, I think we should leave that one there because otherwise we'll we'll just I think stay stay focused on it this whole time. But um, how you doing? Yeah, Feeling thanks good. for doing some extra advice in your spare time. Have you like no hit a problem. wall yet? Like, are you like no? I could do this all day. I know it's so much fun. Yeah, I really could. I did you ever get tired of it? Like, did it um, stop being fun? Start being annoying? Because there there are certain annoying pieces. We can talk about them later. I could imagine that would start to kind of. It was honestly, I mean, it was the kind of thing where I did eventually have a sense of, I want different things for my career as a writer and I need more time and energy to devote to them. And so I want to start thinking about my next move. But on like a daily or a weekly level, not often, no. It was, I mean, you know, I I was going to say like to this day as if I stopped that job 50 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Daniel Avery's been dead for 50 years. Um, It was you know, I, I think one of the best jobs, like it's just really fun. Even the yeah. hard stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, I completely agree. And everyone told me to avoid the comments completely. So Slate listeners, if you've ever left a comment, I'm sorry, I didn't see it to protect my mental health. So I have like none of the negative side at all, except for that person who like sneaks in the your letters <laughs> are too long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think one of the things that is great is you can always just say like, I don't get paid to read the comments. Like this is my job. Right. I get paid to do the job. And that was one of the things that I I feel like I was often asked like periodically throughout my tenure, you know, there'd be somebody who's like writing about advice columns generally or, or you know, slate advice columns specifically and would sometimes want to like do an interview. And I would often get asked like, how do you let go of these things? Or like, do you find that you carry them around with you all day? And I would feel like, well, you know, sometimes they, they're they really hard to think about or they're deeply sad or concerning. And certainly some of them have, you know, stayed with me. But, I, I, you know, Don Draper voice, that's what the money is for. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's not that I just do this in my spare time for no reason. Like, I have specific job requirements. I get paid to do them. And then when I'm done, I go home. And I feel like that's something that uh, 
you and I kind of share maybe? Yes, totally. Absolutely. Um, I've only had to text you once in a panic wondering if I made a huge mistake. Um, yeah. Which is a great <laughs> track record, by the way. Yeah. At the end, at the end, I don't think I did. Um, so yeah, if there's any hard part, it's like wondering if you steered someone wrong or if people will find you on Twitter and LinkedIn to tell you that you steered someone wrong. I mean, I sincerely do want to do the right. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and I've received a couple of messages there. Like, just so you know, like, I normally agree with you, but you were wrong. And let me tell you why. Those are, I think, fine to read. Like when it's somebody who's just like, I've thought about this carefully. I disagree with you. Here's why. Like those yeah. were nice to hear. But the ones that I wanted to try to like put a buffer zone were like, you know, not only are you wrong every time you open your mouth, but here's everything I don't like about your body and oh, uh, God. You know, what I guess you're like in your interpersonal relationships. And I was just like, I don't need that information, man. Oh, God. Luckily, I've protected myself from that so far. Um, <laughs> but overall, yeah, there's nothing really to complain about. Did you ever find yourself um, giving yourself advice as Prudy? Absolutely. I totally have been doing that. It's really helpful. It's really, really helpful. Frankly, it's kind of like that body neutrality stuff earlier. Like if I feel stuck mm-hmm. on a problem or like really down on myself for how I've handled a situation, like that's sort of a useful framing device for taking me out of myself and trying again yes. without the like the like the well of shame where you can't crawl up the sides. Mm-hmm. Like I have a, a doctor's office that I like wasn't too happy with. Like I felt like whenever I got information with them, it like wasn't explained and it was unclear and it was delivered in a way that was kind of cold and nobody was ever reassuring me about anything. And I spent a couple of days just like ranting about this to anyone who would listen. And then finally, I kind of found myself asking like, well, what would I say to this person if they wrote in? And obviously, it's a very easy question. I would say like, email your nurse and tell her that you have questions that have gone unanswered and like you need clarity. And so I did it and she called me and it went really well. But I don't think if I hadn't had, I don't, if I hadn't had the pretty experience, I don't think I would have treated myself that way and come to that conclusion. It is amazing how often the answer is say something directly to the person you have a problem with. Not every single instance in life, but so many of them. And so often it's easy for me to see in other people's lives. But when it's me, I'm like, "Uh, no, I'm pretty sure that would kill us both. Totally. I have like an acronym that I put down when I'm like taking notes of my answers. It's O-L-G-C-L. One last good clear talk. So many people just to have one last good, clear talk about something because there's a lot of people who are like, I've mentioned it or like I've pushed back. But I'm like, have you really like sat them down and said, this is important. You are not allowed to talk to me like this anymore. If you do, this is what's going to happen. This is the last time we're discussing it and there will be consequences. I just feel like so many people need one last good, clear talk. I'm so glad that you came up with an acronym. That's one of the things that I sort of regret is like I never came up with like a cool term that everyone adopted or like an acronym. Like, you know, Dan Savage had dumped the motherfucker already and other advice columnists have their like turns of phrase. And I'm so glad you're already coming up with acronyms. I definitely think that should be a key component. I've never shared that with the world before. That's just like in my notes, but maybe I'll try to make it a thing. It, and that's I'm fine. Workshopping but it, yeah. I really hope you occasionally drop a new acronym. Um, Janae, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being a fabulous dear Prudence. And thank you so much for drinking out of that giant, beautiful jug of water uh, on screen <laughs> so I could see that you live like a hummingbird. You're welcome. I do my best. Um, thank you for having me. This was really fun.
Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up, to subscribe, or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Letter writer, your brother was not merely arrested, but also charged. He wasn't merely charged. He was also convicted. Your mom saw that just as much as you did. And she still chose to ignore that convincing, straightforward evidence. So I I think you're stuck a little bit in this trap of, I love my mom. I want to believe the best of her. And so I need to think of this as just a, a problem of not understanding. Like she just doesn't see the purpose. And if she ever really got it, then she would choose to do the right thing. That's not actually what's going on here. Your mom has seen lots of great evidence that her son molested children. And she has chosen to pretend that he didn't. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.